We are live. Attention, Earthlings. Welcome to Connected Learning TV. Uh, this is the fourth and final webinar, actually more of a conversation, of our January 2016 series titled Maker Ed, Tinkering, Inventing, Learning. And I'm going to take my hat off because it's probably distracting the heck out of everybody. Um, the series was organized by me. I'm Howard Rheingold. You can find out all about me at rheingold.com, R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. Um, over the course of the series, we've focused on maker educators in schools, libraries, and after-school programs who are awakening and feeding interest in discovery, invention, and hands-on learning through new tools and practices. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Today, we're talking with Steve Davey, um, Hannah Holby, who uh, is going to show up, we hope, Peter Wardrip, and Corey Wittig about making learning across different institutional settings. Before we dive into our conversation, let's go over a couple of quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either through the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. This uh, webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Projects EducatorInnovator.org. So um, let's start out by introducing ourselves. Steve, do you want to lead off? I'd be honored to. Thank you, Howard, and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I'm Steve Davey. I'm the I almost said my old title. <laughs> uh, formerly Director of Education, now Chief Maker Educator here at MakerEd. We're a nonprofit in Oakland, California that serves libraries, museums, schools, and community organizations, um, especially in underserved areas, helping to create more opportunities for children to make things. Um, I come to this job uh, as a former teacher and educator and documentation specialist where I work with pre-K through fifth grade students in, a, in an environment where the environment was considered the third teacher. So it was a huge everyday aspect of how we taught. So I'm really excited about today's uh, topic because of that. I'm also excited because I spent a year with partners and colleagues to write uh, the Youth Makerspace Playbook, which came out in the fall. Um, this is designed to help people get started and improve their spaces in all those institutions that I named. And a couple of our partners that are actually represented in this book are represented in this webinar today, including Peter and uh, hopefully Hannah when she shows up at the free library. So uh, another reason I'm super excited to be here today is I've been really fortunate in my life, educational life, to volunteer and work uh, for the past 34 years in science camps and after-school programs and daycares and things like that in settings that include woods and the farms and backyards and schools and libraries. And um, so I've had a great amount of age ranges from babies and toddlers to college-age toddlers uh, of experience and to have seen how many different environments can really impact learning. And so I'm excited to learn from colleagues and friends here and for your questions. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Peter Wardrip, and I'm happy to be here as well. And uh, I'm a researcher at the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I study um, learning in maker-based learning experiences. At the museum, we have a makerspace called MakeShop, which supports family learning through making. But um, <clears throat> we also uh, support a lot of maker-based experiences in libraries, in, in other museums, in schools and some after-school and social service organizations. And so I, I work to study 
the impact of those programs as well as uh, different ways of supporting facilitators and educators for those experiences. Thank you, Peter. Corey, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> That's, I'm not David Bowie. I'm Corey Wittig. I am the Digital Learning Librarian at Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. I've been in this position for about the last five years, and the main focus of it has been to um, design a learning lab. We got funding from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to create one of the Umedia-inspired learning labs. Um, so it's a program for teenagers specifically um, at this point, but we're spreading to making with, with kids and adults as well. Um, I've been at CLP for my whole professional career coming up on 10 years later this year, um, but been getting more and more involved in um, maker stuff around Pittsburgh um, with Peter, working with Peter a bit. Uh, we've got a great network city of maker educators from formal and informal uh, backgrounds. Also really involved and promote, I want to spread the word about the UMedia Learning Labs network of museums and libraries that the National Writing Project supports. So thanks for having me. Great. You know, if you have uh, URLs for anything that you want uh, people to know about, put them in the chat and they'll end up on the web page. So, thanks. for example, the, the Youth Makerspace Playbook, I'd like to know how to get that. So, if you've got a, if you've got a link to, to get it directly, um, put, it, put it in the chat. So, okay, you know, we can, we can go anywhere we want. Um, and I'm thinking about the people who are trying to make makerspaces over a lot of different kinds of institutions, learning from um, your experience. So, uh, why don't we start out with um, what kind of changes have you made in your space that have made it an effective learning environment? And, um, and have you experienced resistance from institutions while trying to implement these changes? And if so, what did you do about it? Um, I'm happy to start with that one. Um, so um, the library, I mean, the thing that the, I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we have is, is just um, getting the word out that libraries offer making experiences now and that that's becoming more and more of a thing and um, just established and part of the philosophy, I think, that people are really comfortable with. So, um, you know, that's changing from a pretty traditional kind of environment with just books, um, which, uh, you know, to, to a space where guitars are being played, where things like that are happening. So um, the, in our bigger libraries, it's, it's, you know, something like the Umedia at Harold Washington where you have um, either its own separate room or just a, a big space on an open floor plan library with all of the maker gadgets and um, a space sort of designed around the hanging out, messing around, and geeking out idea. Um, what we're working on now is what that looks like in really small libraries. Um, so if this is truly something that we're doing going forward in libraries, you know, it's got to exist in some form at each space. So that right now looks like a mixture of, you know, programming kits that get sent around the system, um, carts where things kind of get wheeled out, maybe a little corner um, taking over a common space in the library. Um, so, you know, I think one thing that might be interesting to discuss is that that looks different depending on the size of the, of the library, of the institution. Um, size of the facility seems to really impact things for us. We don't want it to just exist in, in the biggest, um, most decked out spaces. 
Okay, good. Let's let's talk about that. Meanwhile, Hannah has shown up. Welcome. Hi. Well, would, would you like to introduce yourself, and then we'll get back to this question, and I'll repeat it for you. Yeah, my name is Hannah. I work for the Philadelphia uh, Free Library. I work at the Kensington branch, where I just came from. Um, and I'm a maker mentor, and I also work making curriculum for our program. So, um, we were talking about what kind of changes have you made to your space, particularly if you're in a, a, a non-school institution like a, a library or another space that, that have been made learning effective, and if so, and have, have you had any resistance from institutions about implementing those changes, and if so, what have you done about it? And uh, I don't want to let what Corey said drop, which is that... Uh, what do you do about small spaces? I, I know that some people put kind of a maker space in a cart um, to to be able to move it into a smaller space. Uh, and of course, it's great if you have a dedicated space and you can you can have everything there set up. So um, I would open the floor to discussion of those issues. I can't hear it. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, I actually posed that question because I was interested to see what other people did because our libraries are so different. Um, so uh, we, I, in the library I work at, we have a room and we've done a lot of things like paint, like painting chalkboard wall to make it interactive and making a Velcro wall so that we can have a marble slide and having like cork board and other things about the room itself that feel like a makerspace so you can actually interact with the room. But then other libraries have been pretty frustrated because they're in the middle of the children's section they don't even have, they have like a shelf. So, and the cart, the mobile cart makerspace idea has always, has come up, but have, feeling like it's an effective way of creating making has been hard. And so I'm wondering if there are things that people have done that have felt uh, that they've worked. For us in each space, I feel like it's there's have to been some other kind of creative solution. Um, the thing that I always try to stress, though, because the cart thing might work or might just feel ne like necessary, but I I feel like having things out and visible, I always say, like suggests the creativity that can happen there and so if things get put away and in libraries if you have like you know a librarian who wants things very neat and everything in its place that can translate to which I sympathize with but <laughs> um, in a way also can just you know it's out of sight out of mind and so I, I think whatever it is like shelves where like we have one of the this uline cart which our facilities guy hates but is like a, a stock picker card actually, so it's like a steel cage that you can like see into. So even if it's closed and locked, if no one's around, like you can still see what the stuff is, and it's on casters, so you can like scoot it around. I mean, you know, kind of obvious, but that kind of thing has been the kind of solution we've tried to take. What I've seen be effective in a lot of institutions, including my old school, is um, having a subset of materials, and they can be very simple, like art materials, always out, always available, always inviting. Um, 
something as simple as blocks, for example. Why are they taking them out of classrooms? But uh, you can be invited to a special construction area that's always open or can be integrated throughout days, no matter what institution you're in. So it's what, it's what invites and what's visible that's very exciting. It's part of the message that the environment gives to its participants. Yeah, and I, I would just like to add, um, piggyback on what Steve was saying, is that um, by having, having materials sort of out so it's inviting, it's sort of making a stand about um, the kind of experiences and services that, at least in a library setting, um, what the kind of services that they're providing. And, and I, I've, I visited, um, I visited a, a small library in New Jersey where the makerspace was the, the conference room. Then, and that just happened um, on, you know, for two hours twice a week, and they had to pack up and unpack everything. But at the same time, they had um, in tables, different tables throughout the library. They still had opportunities to engage with circuits or um, other, as as the librarian told me, other quiet materials. So the noisy stuff happened in the in the conference room, but the uh, not so noisy stuff happened sort of. Out, out, visible. I've had experience actually overdoing it with materials. I think if you think about the creative constraints that are possible when you provide a small subset of what's what's available, I've gone overboard in after-school programs, for example, bringing in multiple carts, not just one of. All, every material possible, which is my tendency when I provide tinkering opportunities. Um, in some cases, that can be very overwhelming and unnecessary, uh, and it takes a lot more time to set up and take down. Uh, children are really, really good at making the most of the constraints that you give them and creatively pushing those constraint boundaries. So <laughs> if you give a child uh, a, a big stack of paper, they'll find something beautiful and new to do with it. Or uh, one of my best math lessons ever was giving children 100 Maxbox cars because I hadn't prepared anything for that particular math day. Led to months of investigations of science and physics and that sort of thing. A constrained amount of materials can be extremely powerful. You know, in terms of constraints, when when I was a kid, I went to a class that uh, just had a, a a big pile of newspaper about uh, three feet high, and um, it asked uh, they asked us to uh, to to make groups of three and and to have a I don't know fifteen minutes to to make something tall um, with no no glue no scissors nothing but but newspaper. And uh, and it was fantastic. We had a great time, and I, I liked it so much that I did it with college students. Actually, try to you know get them into the collaborative mood. So so yeah, it's, you know minimalism sometimes works. Or you know put out three things and ask people what what they want to do with it. So we've been talking a little bit about librarians, and I would expand that to include classroom teachers. These are new roles. In in what ways do you see librarians and classroom educators dealing with the, the role of being a, a, a maker educator. What's, what about that transition or what, what can, could help enhance that from, from your experience? Um, Pete, Peter, do you want to take it first? Sure. Okay. Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of the connection between changing the environment as well, and it's about um, one thing. We have the luxury at our makerspace of having some fantastic full-time teaching artists, which are 
dedicated to facilitation, designing uh, experiences, uh, bringing in new materials and new processes for our visitors to sort of engage in. Um, and it's, it's a luxury that uh, means that we're not only putting forth the, the financial resources of having, um, having those full-time staff, but um, setting aside uh, professional learning time for them, sending them to conferences, uh, sending them in Pittsburgh, we have wonderful networking opportunities with formal and informal educators, so sending them to those experiences. It's, uh, it's not necessary. I mean, it's sort of like a developed role for that particular um, exhibit in, in our museum, but it's also um, sort of changing our perspective on how to support those, um, those educators within our space. And I think that might be the same, Corey, in, with your program too, isn't it? Yeah, I was actually thinking about, I saw we were both unmuting at the same time. Um, I was thinking about something you said about your your trip around to all the libraries and makerspaces and for your research about the commonality of people's requests for professional development of some kind. So what I've experienced is, I'm, I feel like there's there are those who are attracted to our profession um, for a more like historical kind of sense of librarianship and what that is, and that doesn't mean it's not like tied to a love of community and like the the people connection side of things. But um, it might still. I mean, I feel like I was drawn to the profession for like I, I just want to be around books and and I still do, and that's still like a huge part of it. But um, but what I realized when I started working in the profession was like oh like I, I had one of those things when I had my first uh, interview at the library. Where I kept saying about community and being embedded in like a community library and all these things and I was like yeah I get that just came out like it's true but I don't think I ever really thought of it that way so for those people that are working in libraries um, I think the switch to the realizing that you know the philosophy of a makerspace has like access to this information access to community access to like learning um, at your own pace to your own interest is really core to like what we've always done so I think when that switch happens people are totally comfortable but you know, still feel that the, I think the best thing we could do is provide, uh, you know, on-the-job learning opportunities and access for people to, you know, do their, get hands-on and the Children's Museum does great stuff with this and I was thinking earlier talking about the material stuff, um, the Children's Innovation Project which is also out of Pittsburgh and um, is a, a maker educator and a, and a elementary school teacher, well they both are maker educators and develop this great curriculum that you guys are probably familiar with, but if not, I'll put that, I'll put a link in the chat. Um, but there was a great short documentary about them recently that was that was out and is, is around, I think. Um, but Melissa Butler, the, the teacher from, that, from Pittsburgh Allegheny, was telling me about their programming that she'll just sometimes just put out keys. <laughs> and I was like, she's like, you know, and there's not, like, they don't unlock something, it's just keys. And it just has like a material, an object, like something to explore, something to like notice, and and I thought that was really great. But um, you know, something like that, like activities that we're engaging our staff in, um, that open those kind of ideas to them. I, it just makes everything so much easier. There's more resistance when it's just like, you know, people that have been around the block, especially who I think are thinking like, oh, here comes another like thing for libraries to do. And they're used to a lot of those things just kind of passing by, and they haven't really interacted with them. So I think what's starting to happen that I've seen create momentum, um, you know, just engaging people in, like, the same type of 
things we want to engage the public in, like these kind of exploratory, like chill, you know, relaxed, um, at their own interest, at their own speed, you know, be curious. The things that you don't generally associate with like formal education, which I don't know is totally a, a fair judgment, but you know, like people have that reaction with with the library as like, oh, we don't want to make them do anything. And it's like, we're not making, we don't want to know, we don't want to make them do anything, but we want to like provide this opportunity. And I've just seen a lot of momentum around that, that uh, kind of philosoph philosophical shift. Libraries have been historically a safe space for everyone in the community. It's the place where things are freely available, and they, they serve all types of people that need them the most. And a lot of children after schools, for example, they don't have places to go, come to a library, they'll socialize. Now they're seeing more and more things offered for them that are um, active, and of course it gets them more interested in the traditional reading and research type roles as well. I've been to libraries and seen eager teenagers lined up at the teen maker space, ready to get in at a certain time, and, and not wanting to leave afterwards and become mentors. Um, I've seen libraries that have tool lending libraries and have that historical mission um, made more obvious within the space by having those tools out on the floor. So those are traditional roles as well. There's just so many things that have traditionally been done by, by libraries that um, they've transitioned towards technology to help people be on computers, get jobs, and that sort of thing. That was a big transition for traditional missions. So you're right. Libraries have been asked to do a lot of new things and evolve with the times very quickly. I, I think anything you do to invite the, uh, the interest of librarians and their key mission of serving the community, um, they see the, the maker things as a, in that light as well, what can be provided to the community as a new service uh, that actually supports the traditional service of libraries as well. I think, I think it's worth noting that, that um, in addition to, or rather than uh, trying to persuade librarians to change their role as maker educators is uh, opportunity to use the, the library's community function and its space to partner uh, with others. The, the experience that I've had in, in, in my part of the world is that I, I participate in a small group uh, of about a dozen people and we spend a few years making something and we wanted to show it to the community and we persuaded the, the, the local library which does have a lot of rooms and a lot of activities to enable us to do that. We also persuaded them to enable us to, to do some workshops um, at that time. And it was, it was fantastically uh, successful in, in terms of the kids and, and, and parents really liking what went on. So it's sort of, you know, they are busy and they've got a very active community and lots of events going. And I, I don't think that they want to quite yet turn themselves into maker educators, but they're definitely open now to the idea of maybe we'll have a workshop every once in a while, or maybe there will be a, a, another kind of uh, maker ed workshop. And definitely one of the things that happened that, that impressed them was that that kind of peer learning, where some of the, the kids who were the most enthusiastic ended up sort of helping the, the other ones. I, I, I know that this is something you see in every makerspace and I think it's one of the most exciting parts of of that kind of learning is quite often there's some student who may know more than certainly the other students but often more than the teacher and it gives him an opportunity to to exert some leadership and I don't think that that's something that traditional educators or traditional 
librarians automatically think of, but when they see it, they get excited by it. Yeah, that, that reminds me of, uh, so we work with a number of teachers at um, schools around uh, western Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and one of the big shifts that, that we try to encourage is the teachers sort of acting as co-learners within the space, along with the students. You know, because in some ways that, that enables us to put the students' interests, the students' uh, curiosities, the agency of the students, sort of make that central to the learning experience. But that's, I mean, it's a, there's lots of ta very talented maker educators that we work with, but it's a significant shift for, for many teachers to be co-learners and to develop a culture and expectation within a classroom as a co-learner supporting, because that requires, I think, I think we've seen that requires different lines of questioning and different, uh, different ways of relying on students to, to step up and, and support uh, not only their peers, but the teacher sometimes. I think this artificial line that sometimes is uh, drawn between formal and informal education is, is kind of breaking down in many ways. And, and uh, Pittsburgh is a beautiful example of that. You know, the, the Children's Museum is part of a, a whole network of all organizations you can possibly imagine, from the university to schools to libraries, um, the Remake Learning Network. And I just want to give a little plug for the uh, Remake Learning Playbook. And that model of sharing between institutions where they kind of pass off and share knowledge between each other so that it's one continual educational experience opportunity designed to hit the areas of education and, and the community that need it the most. So there's beautiful ways of melding all these institutions together. So thank you, Peter, and for being part of that model. Um, I <laughs> so I was just thinking of something that was a, was tied um, to something there, but I also think might <laughs> offer another um, another angle on this. Not to take your hosting role, Howard. Um, I we I feel like one of the things we're we're trying to get to now. So if you know that hanging out, messing around, geeking out idea of Mimi Ito's uh, crew coming out at uh, UMedia a few years back, um, we were talking when I saw Hannah last um, about like. You know, it comes up so often in other maker educators' conversations, like the getting to the sort of geeking out level idea. And to me, that means a lot of youth leadership in the space. Um, and so we've been functioning, like running for a little over three years now. And you know, certainly there are examples of that that happen naturally. But we're getting to a place where I feel like we have our, um, you know, our legs under us now and are able to focus on this in a more direct and intentional way. Um, and I'm curious about other people's like experience of you know providing opportunities for further for leadership and and you know things how that how that's happened for and uh, how that have you seen that happen in maker spaces and um, so I think that speaks to the agency piece and like where we're all really trying to get um, whatever age group it is you know uh, getting that that sense of agency um, really engaged. Well, that's, that's been a theme throughout the, uh, all of the webinars that we've had this month is this idea of agency. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious in, in traditional school, you, you spend a lot of time doing what the teacher asks you to do. And in makerspaces, you're usually not there unless you're engaged, you as a student are engaged in, 
in, in doing something that when you're done with it, you're going, you're going to feel that, that you did it. Um, I just would invite anyone to comment on that, uh, how you get to and the, and the rewards of that kind of agency that comes with introducing uh, you know, students of all ages to, to, to making things together. And I would say a wrinkle there, Howard, is that um, in the library, for instance, you know, a lot of times it is kids who are just there to be in a space where they're allowed to be. So it might not be coming in with that um, sense of, of wanting to make, you know, so part of that getting them to the, um, the place of agency is, is first getting them comfortable with, like, the idea of making and trying. And, you know, so there's a really from beginning to end on this, on this wild spectrum of that. Hannah, were you going to speak? I think one thing that um, has worked well for us is when a kid, seeing other kids being able to use their own ideas. So, I mean, this is something we struggle with too. Corey and I talked about this last time we were together. And I and the the places it's worked the best are when an older kid has come in with an idea and other kids are around and see that they came in with an idea and that we paid attention to it and that we tried to help them get it made. And right now this is working with like making movies and video and I can't say that we're making great stuff but some of the older kids came in with this idea to make these movies about grandmoms and they put on gray wigs and they make fun of old people and it's not that nice <laughs> and it's like but they're kind of getting out this comedy routine and a bunch of the younger kids have now started to make video on their own and have gotten interested in a little bit of how does the editing happen and it's it's little tiny steps and seeing the process but those younger kids getting to see that the older kids we don't just work with teens it's any into the library, which can be a real struggle sometimes, but can be really neat in this way, like somebody demonstrating they had this crazy idea and we didn't shut it down even though there were parts of it we were maybe uncomfortable with, but like let them get out this idea and then have used that opportunity to help other kids get their ideas. So now we have a Dungeons and Dragons movie that started because that's what the younger kids are into. Um, but I think it's a lot of it is about using those opportunities, seeing some, seeing, not making sure other um, students see that you're not shutting ideas down, that they can really come with an idea because it's something that's strange for them too. They're used to being told they have to do a certain thing. I guess creating a culture. I love that you bring up the, their ideas front and center, and I think that every classroom, every environment can take, can be a makerspace, first of all. You know, like every classroom can be a makerspace, and it doesn't have to deal with the materials at all. It is, first and foremost, children's ideas, interaction, mentorship opportunities. So what is it about the environment of that classroom that makes children's ideas and process visible and celebrated? If you walked into a classroom and all that you saw were questions that students have been asking, problems they've been working on to solve, or projects on the shelves in various different conditions, um, that sort of thing can serve every subject all throughout the day at any age whatsoever and put 
children front and center in that class. Um, and then, yeah, you're going to get more experts and mentorship for children making their ideas visible to other children and the gifts they have to give each other more visible and drawn out and, and celebrated and nurtured. So I think every place in makerspace, every classroom in makerspace, uh, you can take the things that Anna's been talking about and make it happen anywhere. There are, um, there are two really cool examples, or at least I think there are cool examples from from our makerspace where we're trying to address the question of, or the challenge of getting children to feel empowered to make uh, what they want because it, when they approach our space and, and our teaching artists ask, you know, what do you want to make today? It can be an overwhelming question or one that they're not completely prepared for. So um, one is that uh, through a research study we found that a lot of students, or a lot of children coming in um, were really inspired by imaginary worlds that they create and play in um, at their home. So, for example, there was one child who was um, who constantly uh, has imaginary play around the beach and in, he has a room in his house where he's set up, you know, an imaginary coastline with, with animals and fish and seashells and things like that. And so when he came to make shop, he, he built a um, uh, sort of like a fake oxygen oxygen tank out of a two liter and some tubes and things like that. Uh, another uh, another child built a, a sword and a shield to match their imaginary world around castles. And so we we've we've been trying to sort of connect to those aspects to encourage young children to make. And another new program that we've been doing is we call it Maker Story Time. And so we have a a, a regular time where. Uh, one of our teaching artists will will select some books to read, um, and the books center around characters or plots that that interact with materials, processes, tools, or some sort of building process that uh, after they read, they can sort of enter into that process uh, sort of prematurely through the book, and then uh, the book sort of catalyzes then uh, engaging with that material or that tool or that building process, just sort of as a way for them to sort of vicariously experience the, the use of the tool or the material and then dive in themselves. I was going to say, um, to build on what Hannah was saying, I saw a film that her teens um, made recently and I was kind of really happy. I've actually been thinking about it since I saw it because uh, it reminded me so much of films that come out of our library and I think it's so, sometimes it feels like you have to share about projects that are only, you know, kind of about society or something, you know, like really important stuff and it's incredible when like our programs get to the point or kids have the access to like speak to those things in their community but, you know, so often like what we see these great things come from are, you know, the best example for us in the last year or so as um, Amalia Tonsor, one of our uh, mentors, leading a group at our East Liberty Library through this big haunted house project where they, you know, had educators from Makeshop um, come and our mentor, Amalia, and the rest of the great teen specialists there, like, work with, you know, you know our, our program is very drop-in um, workshop and then we open lab, like, the setup. Um, but said, you know, if you're going to be involved in this, like, teen-led, like, haunted house, this, we have, to, like, weekly meetings, like, everyone's got a role, you know, they built out this whole set and, like, did tryouts and did projections for it and sound effects and, like, acted in it and led, like, there, like, 300 people came the day of it, marched in a parade for it, 
you know, but it was like, what was it? It was a mashup of Candyland and Alice in Wonderland called Alice in Candyland. That was like a haunt, like a spooky version of Alice in Wonderland and Candyland. Um, you know, so that's like, it's funny because like that's the story I want to be the lead, but it's such like a quirky story that big people don't know, always know how to like, you know, I think about the literature reviews that happen as part of these like studies on Maker, like Agency by Design has like put out their preliminary stuff and like Peter and Lisa are working on and, and you know, the articles are always about the job market and like economy and, and things like that. Um, you know, and hopefully I think those things naturally are affected if these opportunities are made available over time um, with like, you know, mentors working with youth and people of all ages and you know, but at the same time, like, what are the things that we, we see and we know all the time is just, like, and that speaks to the agency thing. Like, they took it so seriously. They, like, they, you know, the, you know, the expectation of, of following through with that made, like, the making experience a lot more potent, I think, and, like, was, you know, it was the connected learning thing. It, like, happened through that. Um, but it's funny because they're always, like, these, like, quirky films and, and things like that. And then every once in a while you'll be, like, kids just started interviewing people in our Hazelwood neighborhood about, like, video interviews about race and like they're getting some really like provocative stuff like some library users are coming in and like going on like a racist tirade but the kids are like whoa this is very real I'm, I'm gonna edit this and turn it into a thing you know so like that pops up out of nowhere but it's usually the like the haunted house the like um, thing that is like trying to get something out that's you know like be a clown be a you know scare people like do those things but it's still you know, it's like we're we're teaching kids these things, but it's it's coming out of kids' brains. Like it's these amazing things where they're just like, "That's interesting. That's funny. That's scary. Like, let's follow that." Um, so just being so used to like where that that runs is, is just is funny and and great to me. I love the emerging theme of imagination and story that's developing here. I mean, I think if you want to in, in, invite fantastic forms of making that are meaningful, personal, and awesome, what is it about your environment that promotes play and imagination and makes it visible? whether it's completely whimsical or something tied to a story, like you said. Um, within the Children's Museum of uh, Pittsburgh, for example, is a, a nonprofit Saturday Light Brigade where young children uh, in this radio-making makerspace go out into the uh, community and interview their elders and tell the stories of the community and then produce uh, radio shows about them. It's right next to a theater where, of course, you know, stories emerge all the time. From stories, I mean, have you ever seen play happen where a story hasn't emerged? And have you ever seen a story that uh, with materials around that hasn't involved making something? So, so I think that uh, anytime you invite imagination stories, beautiful making follows, and of course, learning. Do do you, any of you have particular prompts that can can try that that can get that kind of storytelling that leads to making something uh, going? I do, but I'll, I'll defer to others. I don't want to talk too much, but the storytelling issue and literacy is a big part of my passion, so I'll get back to it. You should go. If you got, you got it. It's going to probably remind us of stuff to say, too. Well, I think that, uh, you know, fortunately I was able to work in a school where uh, storytelling was developed through materials and through revisiting materials and sharing and co-creating stories that ended up being published or acted out. Every single play was one written by the students and every aspect of that play was created by the students, costumes, lighting, every word. Uh, 
all of that and even some serious investigations emerged from observations about how children play and what they're saying, what's important to them. I'll give you an example. In preschool, uh, observation was made that children were acting like uh, wild animals and having these family issues and protection issues. And the teachers got real curious, what does that mean? It led to a year-long deep study of inquiry into wild animal nature that involved many forms of making, but including making masks, gorgeous masks, and going to a zoo, interacting with wild animals as wild animals. Uh, all the adults thought, eh, the wild animals will not pay attention to that. All the kids said, yeah, we're going to make friends with the animals. The kids were right. The animals saw those masks as something you interact with, and stunning things happened. All came from uh, observation of play and led to all sorts of talk about science and independence and the nature of animals. Uh, so paying attention to play leads to stories, leads to study. I'm thinking of um, not a prompt per se, but something that has come out of uh, another Pittsburgh connection is um, a company called Bird Brain Technologies that a roboticist um, Tom Lowers created out of Carnegie Mellon, and it's uh, the you know a, equipment that a lot of people have been used serving makerspaces. Uh, it's a you know a robot that is used a robotics kit that is built with you know arts and crafts stuff and. The best thing to do about with that kid, and it always seems to be like you know where people head with it, um, is to in, you know engage, create some kind of interactive robot for with storytelling, you know, and related to storytelling, and um, that's how we started working with our children's librarians with that kind of stuff recently. Um, it was like, oh, you know, we have the one book, one child, or one book every young child, you know, um, campaign program. I think happens in April. And it was like, wouldn't it be great if we could? Um, have you know some older kids work with us to build a robot relating to that book that all these librarians are going to use this book, and you know can't we have that um, the be the prompt be you know how do you how do you connect this thing how do you tell you know how do you tell a bit of this story you know with this interactive thing so you have kids designing something for younger kids to interact with um, so I'm just thinking of that as like the connection to how storytelling you know continues to connect to everything we engage with. You know, in, terms of, oh, in terms of prompts, um, one thing that's been really helpful in our space is having a costume box, and a, and we add it's all costumes that we've made, but masks, big paper mache masks that we've made, and then wings and cardboard swords and stuff, and it all falls apart eventually, and we have to throw it away, but all the stuff that the kids have made in the past has has been prompts for stories. I mean, that's happened today, that the kids got into the costume box, and there was an old vape, like a bucket of dirty water that somebody had been using to, <laughs> to wipe the chalkboard, and the props and costumes turned it into, like, this, like, potion, that blah, 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 you know, and it did become a story, and the story became a little movie, um, but... It is kind of amazing how it doesn't have to be um, some cool costume or beautiful prompt. It can be a cardboard sword that a kid made the day before, but it can introduce a new story for the next crew of people. You know, it's magic when it comes to materials and, and prompting stories of any kind is 
putting eyes on it. <laughs> you put an eye or eyes on it, whether it's googly eyes or you draw them or you invite that sort of thing or, or what looks like a, something like a face in the environment. Children respond to faces. That's why they love cute animals, you know. And the bigger the eyes, for whatever reason, the more exciting it is, the more the cuter it is. So, yeah, magic things happen when you put eyes on just about anything. <laughs> and you can do it cheaply, so with a Sharpie. <laughs> you know, I haven't thought about this for years, and I, I wouldn't advocate pranking as part of this, but when I was a kid, we used to... Um, used to be able to buy comic books at the drugstore and we would go and buy some comic books at the drugstore and then we would cut them up and cut out the speech balloons and put um, weird interpretations. Uh, we would change the speech balloons in the comic books and, and then put them back and it was kind of like reverse stealing. We would put them back in the, in the drugstore and I just, you know, I, I, like I said, I haven't thought about this in in, in many, many years, but when I was a kid, just getting comic books and cutting them up and, 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 and pasting them, I mean, doesn't cost very much to, to do that, or it didn't back then. It was, we just had a, a great amount of fun with, with that, you know, sort of storytelling of a kind. Oh, I'd give anything to see that, Howard. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> I've been busting a gut here, muted. <laughs> So we do have some time here, and I wonder, you know, the conversation's gone to a lot of interesting places. What, what kinds of advice do you have for people who, who want to do what you're doing, whether they're our, our librarians or they're educators or they're, they're parents or kids in the community that, that want to get this organized? What, you know, how do you go about it? So I, I'll, uh, I'll chip in a little bit, but I'm sure I'll probably agree with what Hannah, Corey, and Steve say as well. But um, I, I would say just start. Um, it, oftentimes, people we work with, their first question is, what, what kind of 3D printer do we need to buy? Or, or what sort of expensive equipment do we need to buy? And I think um, there's such value in very simple materials, as Steve has, has said many times. And um, I... In addition to getting started, I think also is just um, look around you for inspiration from from the makers that are in your community, that are your colleagues, that are in your neighborhood, um, because there's lots of, whether it be something that's uh, very sophisticated, like, um, you know, the, the fancy uh, garage roboticists that you see at Maker Faire, to um, just model hobbyists who are making... Uh, certain types of airplanes or rockets. We have, uh, we live across the street from a park and there's a guy who, who builds rockets and just shoots them off. And um, the, those sorts of people can be a great resource both for inspiration as well as uh, technical assistance. I'd say, um, I think maybe isn't always the first thing I say, but um, is probably the most universal thing is to, you know, find the the like it connects to what Peter's saying. Find the interest of the people in the community that want to like share a skill and you know have that same connection to where they live as the people who are coming into your space. Um, you know, we've had some re we had a lot of luck with 
with volunteers at the beginning of our programming when we had fewer staff members. And it's really coming together now that people know, I think, you know, what the library is doing with making and, you know, what our program is. You know, people coming in knowing that the library is doing music. This just happened with a guy who was just, like, really excited um, coming in specifically because, you know, what are you guys doing with music? I want to volunteer with that. I see, I know you have these instruments. I know kids play instruments here. And he's a DJ and a musician. So, like, you know, and it's starting to happen that way now. And that's just always going to be so important. And I think it helps, you know, it goes back to the conversation of helping staff transition is is relying a bit and leaning on and supporting, getting support from um, people in the community. And the other thing that I, you know, I, I sort of said earlier, but I think is it's always key for me, and, and we all, I guess, you know, agreed with this, is to, to have have materials out, you know, have the opportunity to to make, um, you know, you know, throw things out there from the, whatever, the print collection connecting to the equipment stuff, like, whatever odds and ends. We have another great place in town called Creative Reuse, and it's just Center for Creative Reuse, and they do great, like, outreach, like, programming as well. But people, it's just, like, the random stuff that wouldn't even be sold at a thrift store, but it's just, like, typewriter keys and old trophies. We get trophies from there every year, $1 trophies for our Labsy Award, which is, uh, and, and that's something I'd say, too, is, like, we do an awards ceremony for, all, for things that our kids are creating out of the program. And, you know, it's a contest that's around the whole city, so people that don't even know we're doing this yet are hopefully finding out that they can get access to this stuff at the library. But we go there and get a, a dollar trophy and remake them and, you know, spray paint them and, you know, glue weird things on and those end up being, you know, just like having that stuff. Like it's so, you know, it's it's the, the cast-offs of the community but it like ends up being like such fun materials to work with. Um, I have advice for people that feel perhaps isolated or intimidated by And I think the best possible choice to have in your hands that every time an educator or children themselves. So how do you maximize that resource? How do you maximize that asset? How do you maximize children? Peter, we're getting some feedback on, uh, on that. Um, Hannah, um, maybe you uh, can mute yourself. Everybody else is muted, and um, and Steve, maybe you can start back at the beginning. Okay, how is the feedback now? Is it, is it better? Okay, I was just saying, if, if you feel isolated uh, or uh, frustrated in how to start, uh, if you're an educator, see your children, see the youth as your assets, as your collaborators. And what is it about your environment and your attitude that's going to maximize that? Um, you can come into a classroom or an environment and say, hey, there are things I don't know. I want to know more about you and what you're interested in. How do you draw that out? How do you make the gifts that every child is born with, because every child is talented and gifted, how do you make them visible? How do you draw it out? And how do you allow them to support each other um, so that every child feels like they have something to bring to the others? I think if that's one number one uh, goals of your environment, you're not just building agency, you're building citizens. You're building children who will, be able to, who will be able to say, I love this. It gives me confidence. And I love that you love that, even though I might not love that thing. I love that there's this, uh, that people are excited about stuff. And they're more likely to give uh, attribution for their ideas and who helped me today? Uh, where did I get this idea from? Who did I help? So you build this culture of attribution. These are things social, emotionally, and sociology, I mean, uh, citizen-wise, 
are absolutely foundational. Uh, they're one of the greatest outcomes of any makerspace. It's this idea of children seeing themselves as confident citizens that have things to offer each other. So I, I could go on too long about that, but uh, children as your greatest assets would be the, the big takeaway there. I think it's interesting that everything that we've talked about has all been people. I mean, like, people are our greatest resource, whether it's other children or if it's volunteers or staff. And I think that that's often can be hard because it's you can't just buy a person. <laughs> but I, I think that's overlooked all the time. I mean, get great people in there. Get people that want to engage with the youth and get youth on board that want to engage with other youth. And just wanted to point that out, that that's what we're all saying in the end. Also, I, you know, I think it's important, uh, it's been noted, but I would, I would reiterate that you don't have to have a lot of fancy materials to, to get this kind of enthusiasm going. And, and last week we talked a lot about cardboard and paper. Um, you know, to, to both to prototype things and, and to make things. Yeah, I always say a lot, like sometimes it'll happen where, you know, people get a certain idea of what our program is and then we'll be doing something that they, was outside of the bounds of that and they'll say, like, that's not the labs, you know, and it's like, well, you know, the way we think of it is, you know, it's the process, it's the project, it's like the way you engage with it and the questions you ask about it. And that's so, you know, you could do things that we think about as making, you could just download something from the Thingiverse and like press print and say, you know, and it's all in the way you approach anything that you want to learn or explore. And, um, you know, so we just started doing some, some cooking or, or doing some cooking in our program. And, you know, and it's like it's the same thing. <laughs> you could just approach it like anything else. And it's like if the kids asked about it and they're like, yeah, you know, we haven't done that yet, but it's probably because you haven't asked about it. So, um, so yeah, just follow that, and, and that means it can be a lot of the same stuff, um, the kinds of programming that or activities that librarians or you know informal educators have kind of congregated around in the past. It might just be delivered differently. Also, uh, just to add on to what I said before, when, when I was a kid, we did an awful lot with milk cartons. Uh, we should just talk for five minutes, list all the cheap things we can say like that are fun to well, play with. Yeah, I think the theme is, you know, what do you already have? How can you use it in new ways, and, and can you invite that new use of your students, rather than say, do this, or can you do this of something, say, here are these materials. What is possible with them? What can these materials do? Um, and you will always be surprised by what you've come up with. Well, I, I'm going to wrap up pretty soon, but I want to give anybody an opportunity to, to say something out there to others who are interested in doing what you're doing that, that you haven't had an opportunity to say. I'd, I'd like to add one other thing um, that that Steve mentioned, but um, it's even broader than what Steve mentioned, that for people who are interested in um, 
establishing a program or a space or just trying to integrate some hands-on maker activities in their program. There are great resources on the web that they can, that they can access. Um, Steve's site, makered.org, not only do they have the playbook, but they have extensive resources that can point you in the direction of other programs in your area. Um, Corey mentioned um, uh, UMedia Community of Practice or something like that. Um, but there, the larger point is that there are, there are lots of great resources that, that you can access on the web that I think are fantastic to, um, to get somebody started and feel inspired. Absolutely. Check out the free library of Philadelphia's Maker John blog, for example. It's packed with awesome stuff for libraries. So the UMedia network, the community of practice site is um, community.umedia.org, and that's the site for anyone who's involved or interested in getting involved with, you know, a maker, a learning lab, um, and, you know, that totally encompasses what we've been discussing today. And then um, umedia.org is, you know, for sites wanting to get involved, like, as a group, as an organization. And, yeah, just the community of practice site especially is, um, that you can just dive right into S such good discussions always and great resources and, you know, no sense in reinventing the wheel when you have the MakerEd materials and all this stuff that, you know, we've all been focusing on getting this stuff going for the last few years, so there's a lot of that. And people eager to share, you know, what they've learned. Was that community new media, one word, or community.newmedia.org? It's community.umedia, so Y-O-U. New media, okay. Yeah, like new media out of Chicago Public Library, yes. Community.umedia.org. Yes. Okay, thank you. Well, so thanks. Great conversation, and, and particularly we've come up, I think, with a lot of good suggestions from, about everything from attitude to, to materials. I, I deeply appreciate your, your time, and, and I, I know that this will, will ripple out to, to others. So this wraps up the fourth and final uh, get-together of our January series on MakerEd, but feel free to continue the, uh, ed, the conversation and, and keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag ConnectedLearning. There will be a full video recording of this available immediately on ConnectedLearning.tv with other curated content coming um, within hours, all of the, the URLs that we've, we've contributed to, to help people. If you found this conversation useful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by the National, Project, National Writing Project's Educator Innovator. Please visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for the email newsletter. So thanks again, everyone, for a fantastic conversation and for a fantastic series, and, and keep up the, the really great work that you're doing.